Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's exciting webinar. I'm Tim Stark and the host of today's exciting event. I'm a professor of civil engineering at the University of Illinois and the technical director of the Fabricated Geomembrane Institute. This is our seventh webinar of 2021, and the remaining seven webinars for 2021 have already been scheduled with great speakers and timely topics, which I will show the next webinar on the last slide today. During today's webinar, we welcome questions and comments, which can be typed into the questions box in the control panel. You may send in your questions at any time during the presentation, and our speaker will address them at the end of today's presentation. The recording of this webinar and a PDF of his slides will be made available on the FGI website after today's presentation. PDH certificates will be sent automatically to all who attend the entire webinar. Today's webinar speaker is Chris Athanasopoulos. Chris is a tenured professor at Harper College, north of Chicago, Illinois. Before joining the faculty of Harper College, Chris was a practicing civil slash environmental engineer for over 16 years. During most of this time, he was the technical services manager for SETCO, which is a major producer of geosynthetic clay liners, or GCLs. At SETCO, Chris was involved with design, testing, research and development, manufacturing and installation of GCLs. So of course, the title of Chris's webinar today is GCLs, Design and Construction. Chris, thanks for squeezing this webinar into your busy schedule and joining us from Chicago. The webinar controls are yours. Thank you so much. Thanks for that nice introduction. And I'm really grateful for the opportunity to collaborate with FGI and with my alma mater, U of I. Uh, so good morning, everyone. Good morning. Thanks to all of you for, for joining us. Uh, so here's the plan for, for today's session. Uh, we're going to first do a quick intro on bentonite and geosynthetic clay liners, and then we'll get to the meat of the presentation. We're going to talk about important design considerations when we're working with these materials, and that includes hydraulic performance, chemical compatibility, and shear strength. And then from there, we'll close it out by talking about GCL and geomembrane installation considerations, and we'll also have some time at the end for questions. All right, so uh, just to start off with a few of the basics, you know, we're going to be talking a fair bit about bentonite this morning. Uh, and so it's important to ask, well, what exactly is bentonite, right? So bentonite is actually the name of the mined ore, and that ore, its main ingredient is the clay mineral montmorillonite. So montmorillonite has some really interesting, really unique properties. Um, and one of those properties is that the individual clay platelets of the montmorillonite have a negative surface charge. And the way to uh, balance that charge is with positively charged ions, in other words, cations. And those cations come to the surface, are attracted to the surface, and they bring water molecules with them, right? They're hydrated ions. And it's those water molecules that fill in that interlayer region and cause the clay to swell. So how much, how much can this clay swell, right? It depends on the nature of the ion that, that enters that space. If it's something like sodium or potassium, it could be a really significant amount of swell, right? If, if the bentonite is left unconfined, it could swell up to 15 times its original volume, right? So, so that's a really interesting kind of otherworldly property. Um, in many geotechnical applications, that's probably not desirable, right? But if we're dealing with containment applications or drilling applications, that, that is a really beneficial quality to have. So you can imagine as that clay is pulling in water and swelling, it's expanding and filling any irregular surfaces or penetrations, and it's forming kind of an active sealing agent. So how does this tie into geosynthetic clay liners, right? So geosynthetic clay liner, definition is a manufactured hydraulic barrier that consists of this clay, this sodium bentonite clay, that's bonded to a layer or layers of geosynthetics. So because of that, because of that layer of sodium bentonite clay, GCL is going to have a very low hydraulic conductivity. We're looking at the order on the order of five times 10 to the minus ninth centimeters per second for a standard GCL, like the one shown in this photograph here. Um, or 
Um, or if you have a, what's known as a multi-component GCL, right? And that's a, that's a standard GCL with either a geofilm or a geomembrane laminate to it, or there are products available that have a coating on top of it. So those would be expected to have an even lower hydraulic conductivity on the order of 10 to the minus 10 centimeters per second. So because of that core of sodium bentonite clay, these materials, these GCLs are self-healing if punctured. If punctured. Um, and at the end of the day, designers often use geosynthetic clay liners as a replacement for a traditional two foot thick layer of compacted clay for many applications. And as we'll talk about here in a moment, we, there are design calculations that you can use to show that those two are hydraulically equivalent to each other. Okay, so with that introduction, now I wanna talk about each of these th three key design elements for geosynthetic clay liners. We're gonna start by talking about hydraulic performance. The question is, will the GCL provide the required level of containment? And then we're gonna move on to the second question that's intimately linked to the first question, chemical compatibility. What about compatibility with contaminated liquids? And then finally, really important consideration, shear strength and slope stability. We have to ask ourselves, will the liner system remain stable on sloping surfaces, berms, ramps, and roadways? So we'll touch on each of these three. Okay, so for starters, anytime we talk about hydraulic performance, uh, whether it's a soil or a geosynthetic clay liner, we're going to use the term uh, hydraulic connectivity, right? And if you think back to your uh, soil mechanics class in college, hydraulic connectivity, we usually denote it with a, uh, with a K, right, with a K variable, and that is just a mathematical indicator of the ability of a soil to conduct water flow, right? So uh, you probably recognize this table from your, from your textbook back in the day, right? So you, you see this range of K values for different types of soil materials. So as you would imagine, if you have an application where you need drainage, where you need water to, lots of water to flow, you're going to specify a sand or a gravel. Those have high hydraulic connectivity values, high K values, right? And then on the other end of the spectrum, if you're looking for some kind of containment application where you don't want lots of water flow, right? You want to hold that water, you're going to look at silts and clays. And of course, one, one uh, unique type of clay is the sodium bentonite we've been talking about with very low hydraulic connectivity values. So how do we actually measure the hydraulic conductivity of a GCL? Well, it's actually similar to how we would measure it for a soil in the laboratory, right? We would use a flexible wall permeometer as shown here. There's a separate ASTM method specific to GCLs for this test. And we, if, if we run this test on a standard GCL with clean water, we would get typical values of about one to five times 10 to the minus ninth centimeters per second. Extremely low permeability value. So we can take that value, right? If we're working with a standard GCL by itself, we can take that value and plug it into Darcy's law expression shown here, and we can come up with an estimate for how much water will flow through the GCL, right? Similar to how we would handle a soil liner. So that's a fairly straightforward calculation, but to be honest, it might oversimplify things, right? Because in most applications, I'll say, or many applications, we're not going to use a standard GCL by itself. We're not going to use a GCL that has the bentonite clay layer with uh, on, with geotextiles on either side uh, by itself. We're usually going to use it together with an overlying geomembrane, and that's called a composite liner system. So here's a, a pretty common example. This is a, a detail of a landfill bottom liner system, right? And you can see that you have the composite liner, the geomembrane on top of the GCL. So that's a little bit of a different animal. We can't really use Darcy's law for that, that kind of calculation. So what do we do? So what we do as an industry is we use what are called the uh, Giroud equations. Uh, they're semi-empirical equations, and we can use those to model leakage through composite liner systems, these multi-component systems. So, so there are several equations available. I've just included the example here uh, that's associated with, with round holes in the geomembrane, and that's, that's kind of the starting point of this calculation. We're going to make the assumption that a composite liner is only going to leak where there is a hole in that overlying geomembrane. 
And then from there, we can describe the flow that happens through each of those holes if we know certain things about the system. And, and they're summarized in this graphic down here. So for starters, um, we, we need to know the, the area, that defect, right? I mean, the larger the hole, it makes sense, the more flow that's gonna be allowed, right? Also, we're gonna need to know, we're gonna need to know um, how much waterhead is on top of that liner system, right? Because that's the driving force for flow. We're gonna need that, that depth of water. Additionally, we're gonna need to know information about the soil or the GCL that's underneath the geomembrane, right? So the thickness plays a role, as does the, there's that hydraulic conductivity, that K value again, okay? And then the final thing that we need to know, it's very important, but it's a little more subtle. We need to know the nature of the contact between the geomembrane and whatever soils underneath it, right? If we have good intimate contact, that means there's gonna be less opportunity for leakage to the side, lateral leakage, which will cause a greater wetted area and more overall flow. Um, and if there's wrinkles, if there's large gaps, then, then, then we could have more of that wetted area and more overall leakage. So we need to account for all of those things. So if we were to perform side-by-side uh, -side calculations, let's say on one hand, we would have a composite liner system that consists of a GCL, or I'm sorry, a geomembrane on top of a standard two foot thick compacted clay liner on one side. And then on the other side, we compare in parallel a separate set of calculations where we have that same geomembrane on top of a GCL, a geosynthetic clay liner, if we use reasonable assumptions for a typical site, site setting, we would find that the GCL-based composite liner system will outperform the compacted clay-based system by as much as a factor of 10. Okay, so this is just one set of calculations that I did using, using some reasonable assumptions. Um, actual results are gonna vary, of course, so you're gonna wanna do these calculations using your site-specific assumptions. But here's the great thing, okay? I mean, as engineers, it's really nice to be able to do some calculations and come up with predictions for performance of these liner systems. But at the end of the day, we really need to realize that performance in the field, right? And as it happens, there is a lot of actual leakage data available. Okay? One study that I'm gonna highlight was a study that was commissioned by US EPA almost 20 years ago now. Uh, it was a far, far-ranging study. It encompassed 91 different landfill sites and 287 different cells at those sites. And the cells were monitored for a period of 10 years. So one thing that all these cells had in common was that they were double-lined bottom liner systems. So what that means is that there was a primary liner system and then there was a leak detection layer underneath that. So by measuring the amount of flow through that leak detection system, they were the researchers were able to assess the performance of the primary liner system that was directly above it. So really clever study, really impactful study. So I'm gonna show a summary of some of that data here. Okay, so I'll take a moment to, to set up this plot. Uh, first, you see on the horizontal axis, we have the life cycle stage of the landfill, right? So it starts from initial filling, then subsequent active filling operations, and then finally after the final cover was placed. And then on the vertical axis, you see the leakage rate through that primary liner system in units of liters per hectare per day. So this is a summary for all the different sites that had sand as that leak detection layer underneath the primary liner. And then further, you see that these different colored curves represent the data from the different types of primary liners, right? So you see at the very top in yellow are the primary liner systems that were just a geomembrane by itself directly on top of the sand. Okay. Then in green, you see the composite systems that was a, that was a geomembrane on top of two feet of compacted clay. And then the curve in red represents the sites that had a composite system of geomembrane on top of GCL, right? And you can see the, the leakage rates for, for all three of these systems. And you can see uh, consistently, regardless of the stage of the landfill, the geomembrane GCL systems consistently allowed less leakage than the others. So this is really compelling information. And as a result of this study, EP, US EPA acknowledged that GCLs are, are hydraulically equivalent 
uh, to traditional two-foot compacted clay liners. So some interesting work that's been done since then is, you know, the, uh, a lot of research, researchers have discussed how the calculated leakage rates using the Giroud equations uh, can sometimes be smaller than what was actually observed in the field. Right? And it seems that the difference is likely due to geomembrane wrinkles, right? And uh, Professor Carey Rowe uh, in 2012 uh, gave a great talk where he talked about how the if you take into account wrinkle lengths and widths and heights, if you take those into account in your leakage calculations, they much more closely align with what the actual liner leakage rates were. Right? So that was really interesting, really helpful data. Um, and so, you know, based on that, I have to I have to share this. Uh, so FGI, as it happens, has prepared this spreadsheet calculator uh, that allows you to estimate liner leakage rates that take these wrinkles into account. So, so the hyperlink is shown here. It's a really useful tool. It's easy to use. It's just an Excel spreadsheet. Now, one other point, one other item to point out before we move on is there is also field performance associated with these materials in final cover systems. So uh, one study in particular that I'm going to highlight is called the Alternative Cover Assessment Program. It's ACAP for short. Uh, the researchers looked at 12 field sites nationwide, and those sites had different types of cover systems. Right? Some had clay, some had geomembrane over clay, some had geomembrane over GCL, and yet others had ET or evapotranspiration caps. Okay? And so if you, if you look at the data uh, from this study, it showed that the two best performing cover systems in this study were both geomembrane over GCL composite cover systems. Okay, so, so that's hydraulic performance in a, in a nutshell. So now I'm going to move on to the second topic, which is chemical compatibility. And this is intimately linked to the first topic because we have to ask ourselves, how will the GCL perform when it's exposed to leachate and other potentially harmful chemicals? So to introduce this topic, we know from years of experience that in order for that bentonite uh, to, to have a low hydraulic conductivity, right, those low 10 to the minus 8th or 10 to the minus 9th centimeters per second values, we need, to, we need that clay to swell and form a gel, right, as shown here in this photo on the, on the left-hand side from Professor Craig Benson, okay? So, that, so, so you can tell that, that that has swollen, it's formed a, a really um, monolithic mass that's very difficult for water to get through. Right, but if you take that same clay and you hydrate it with certain um, certain ions, solutions that contain certain ions, it's not going to swell as much, and that could lead to much higher hydraulic conductivity. So there's here's an example on the right hand side, that same little puck of bentonite. If it was hydrated with a calcium chloride solution, you could tell that it's not going to swell nearly as much, and in fact, you can still see the little bentonite granules in there. As you can imagine, water would be able to find its way. Right? So if we're designing for hydraulic containment applications, we want our system to look more like the picture on the left than the one on the right. All right, so what are the, what are the kinds of things that affect GCL chemical compatibility? Well, this is a really complex topic. I'll just start off by saying that. Um, so really, uh, as part of this webinar, we really can't drill into it too much, but I do want to summarize some of the factors we want to look out for. So first off is leachate chemistry, ionic strength in particular, right? So if we have a solution that has a high ionic strength, in other words, a very salty solution, right? Lots of dissolved ions in it, that could depress the amount of bentonite swell that can occur. Another factor that's been found to affect bentonite swelling is something that's called the ratio of monovalent to divalent ions, RMD. It, it's an intimidating sounding term, but really all it boils down to is it gives us an indication of whether the water is calcium rich or sodium rich, right? If there's more calcium, there's gonna, there's gonna be less swell, okay? And then finally, we'll talk more about this in a moment, the pH of the water, right? Whether it's acidic or basic or neutral, that can also play a role in the performance of the bentonite. The other thing to point out is that it's not just related to chemistry. Uh, there are certain site-specific conditions that can also impact the GCL 
chemical compatibility performance, right? For one is uh, hydration conditions. We've seen in many studies that if the GCL is initially hydrated with fresh water, with clean water, then it holds up better to, to contaminated leachate that it sees later on, okay? Uh, second factor that we've seen is confining stress. In other words, if there is a lot of overburden pressure on top of the liner system, that means that uh, there's smaller void ratio in the bentonite, and it doesn't have to swell as much to maintain that lower hydraulic conductivity. So, so at high confining stress, GCLs can handle uh, surprisingly uh, aggressive uh, chemical leachates. And then the third site-specific condition I want to highlight is wet-dry cycling. So there are situations if the if the GCL is subjected to repeated wetting and drying that that can worsen the effects of chemical compatibility. Okay. And the last thing I want to touch on this is kind of a hot topic that's an emerging area is the use of polymer amendments to improve the bentonite clay performance. So you can use different types of polymers loaded at different concentrations to to improve the performance of the clay. And we'll we'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. Okay, so let's say we're working on a project and we're not sure. We're not sure if there's going to be a compatibility issue. What can we do about that? Well, as it happens, the industry has a few uh, good tests that we can employ to help answer these types of questions, right? So the, the first test method is shown here. This is ASTM D6141. This is an initial quick screening tool. The idea here is that we use a, a sample of the site leachate. We'll mix it with the bentonite. And then we'll perform what's known as a, a swell index test and a fluid loss test. And then we can compare those results to what we'd expect with clean water to see if there's a potential issue. Okay. So this is a this is a useful test, but it, it is it has limited usefulness because it's short term, so it doesn't give us like the, the full long-term picture. Um, and you could also get you could also get false positives, right? So so it's a good first step, but then what I would recommend past that is to actually perform a permeability test or hydraulic conductivity test with the GCL in contact with the site leachate, right? So there's a separate test method for this. It's ASTM D6766. And this is a really great test, right? Because this will give you, uh, give you the, the best idea of how this material will perform in situ in the site conditions. Okay. So as much as I love this test, it has an important drawback though. In order to be sure that it gives you a representative K value for your site conditions, the test has to be run long enough until chemical equilibrium is reached. And how do we assess chemical equilibrium? Well, we check the water chemistry of the leachate that's going into the sample, and we compare that with the water chemistry of the water that's exiting the sample. And we want them to be roughly similar to each other to know that it's reached chemical equilibrium. So that's 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 the tough part of this because that achieving that equilibrium can take several months or even years to complete. So there is a silver lining to all this. Okay, uh, you don't necessarily have to rush out and do one of these several months or year-long tests um, because there's been really good university-level research that's been done with lots of different types of leachate that you can that you can uh, refer to. Okay, so one example that I'm referring to in particular is this study from 2014 from the University of Wisconsin at Madison, where they reviewed this extensive leachate database of municipal solid waste landfills all over North America, and they were able to develop uh, typical and strong MSW leachates, and then they permeated several GCL samples with these leachates over an extended period of time. Some of these tests ran for over three and a half years. Okay. And you can see the results are summarized here. Uh, so you see irrespective of the normal stress, uh, the, the test results were very favorable on the order of 10 to the minus ninth or 10 to the minus eighth centimeters per second. So really low hydraulic performance, really, really low hydraulic conductivity, really good hydraulic performance in contact with MSW landfill leachate. So, so based on this based on this study, it's safe to conclude that GCL should should perform well when when in contact with typical MSW landfill leachate. So that's really good news. Now there are also some emerging markets out there where where um, where we still need to study the effects of chemical compatibility more. And one of those markets is related to coal combustion products. I'm going to call them CCPs for short. 
Okay, so these are the byproducts of the combustion of coal. They include things like fly ash, bottom ash, boiler slag, and something that's called FGD, flue gas desulfurization materials. Okay, so all of these have different chemical and physical properties. Uh, they can be managed separately at some sites, but often they're co-managed, right? So they're disposed all together, right? So it's a really interesting challenge for how to manage these materials. And it's a really interesting challenge to see how GCLs will hold up to some of these chemistries. So as it happens, University of Wisconsin also uh, took a role in testing uh, standard GCLs in contact with different leachates related to CCP materials. So this is from a 2018 study. Uh, and you can see on the left-hand side, I've included this table here to show just the interesting and wide range of chemistries associated with these leachates, depending on the type of the type of CCP that they, they CCP material that they're associated with. And I've highlighted this one on the far right because it really stands out. So this is um, this is the Trona material. It's really high ionic strength, really, uh, really salty material. Um, and, and so this, and it has a high pH as well, a pH of 11, right? So this, this material in particular, not surprisingly, uh, does tend to cause issues with hydraulic performance of GCLs as shown in this chart on the right-hand side, right? So this plot shows the ionic strength of the leachate on the horizontal axis, and it shows the hydraulic conductivity of a GCL that's been, uh, of the GCL that's permeated with these leachates. And you can see, as you go from left to right, you see a clear increase in hydraulic conductivity uh, as the solutions, as the CCP leachates get more and more concentrated, get more and more salty. And, and there's, there's our friend Trona as well. That shows the, the highest hydraulic conductivity. So, so it appears that, you know, depending on the type of CCP leachate that, uh, that your liner system might be exposed to, chemical compatibility could be an issue, right? So we'll talk more about that in a moment. Another emerging area that I wanted to address is mining applications, right? So uh, more and more uh, liner, uh, liner systems are being employed for mining applications. So mining applications introduce some really interesting chemistry on, in their own right, right? So in some applications, you know, you need, you need low pH solutions like sulfuric acid to extract the metals of interest from the ore, things like copper, nickel, and, and uranium, you require sulfuric acid to extract them. In other applications, you need uh, high pH solutions, uh, sodium cyanide solutions to extract things like gold and silver, precious metals from the ore, right? And then a third category um, is the extraction of aluminum from bauxite ore. You need a really, really high pH sodium hydroxide solution to extract it to extract the aluminum from the bauxite, right? So three extreme pH solutions. How do GCLs perform uh, when subjected to pH extremes? So there is data out there in the literature, right? So uh, we found that if you have a really strong acid or a really strong base, uh, they can attack the bentonite and convert it to a non-swelling form, right? So that would, that would result in an increase in hydraulic conductivity. Uh, we've also found that metals tend to be more soluble at low pH, so that that'll that'll increase ionic strength, which is a which is a related issue. And we found in particular that if you have a pH less than two or a pH less than twelve, or so those extreme ends of the range, uh, those can be especially problematic with with sodium bentonite. So what do we do in these situations? Right. Um, so there's some exciting work that's going on right now. It's kind of an emerging area on the use of different types of polymers and amending the bentonite with those polymers uh, to improve the performance of the bentonite in contact with some of these aggressive leachates. Right. So the, the formulations can be tailored for specific leachate chemistry. You can use different polymer types, different loadings. Right. So it's, it's a really, really interesting challenge. Uh, and we've seen that some uh, polymer amended bentonites can maintain a low hydraulic conductivity even with some extreme solutions. And this is still, as I mentioned, this is still an emerging area. There's work underway right now in ASTM. There's uh, on development of a standard guide for testing these materials and characterizing these materials. 
So just to summarize some of the performance that I'm referring to, so this is a study that, that, um, that we were involved with from 2015, where we performed long-term hydraulic conductivity tests with a GCL that had polymer-amended bentonites in contact with two of these aggressive leachates that I referenced earlier, right? So on the left-hand side here, you see the uh, test results associated with the Trona ash leachate, right? So this, this was the, the really concentrated CCP that I referenced earlier. You can see here that the hydraulic conductivity of a standard GCL in contact with this solution was on the order of 10 to the minus fourth centimeters per second, really high hydraulic conductivity. But then down here, you see the red dots represent the hydraulic conductivity of the polymer uh, polymer modified or polymer amended bentonite GCL, and it showed a low long-term hydraulic conductivity of 10 to minus nine centimeters per second. And this, this test extended for more than a year. In that same paper, we also discussed the performance of a GCL in contact with this high pH bauxite liquor solution. Um, and again, standard GCL would, had a permeability or hydraulic conductivity on the order of 10 to minus six centimeters per second, right? Uh, and then here in the, in the blue triangles, you see the performance of the GCL with polymer amended bentonite was on the order of 10 to minus nine centimeters per second. So, so really, really encouraging results. This, this test was on the order of two to three months. So really encouraging results. So to kind of sum things up for compatibility, we've seen that bentonite is compatible with many leachates, including importantly, municipal solid waste landfill leachates. Uh, but if we have situations where there's high calcium and magnesium, high ionic strength, or extreme pH solutions, those could pose problems, so we need to watch out for those. Uh, luckily, there are good screening and compatibility tests available, and they should be performed in cases of uncertainty. Also, uh, you, can, uh, you can also look at the possibility of polymer-modified polymer bentonites. Uh, for, for your particular site leachate, but irrespective, uh, long-term compatibility tests using the ASTM D6766 method are recommended, so you have a really good idea of how these materials are going to perform in situ. Okay, so moving on to the third, the third design consideration, shear strength and slope stability, really important, right? GCLs do need cover for physical protection, overlap performance and lowest hydraulic conductivity, right? The challenge is you put soil or waste cover on top of a sloping liner surface, you're gonna create shear stresses. So our job as, as geotechnical engineers is we wanna make sure that the shear strength of the liner system exceeds those shear stresses in order for everything to remain stable. So, but here's the challenge. Unreinforced hydrated bentonite, it has amazing hydraulic properties, but it has really low strength properties, unfortunately. The, the internal friction angle of unreinforced hydrated bentonite is about 10 degrees at low normal stresses, and, it'll, and, and the curve flattens. It'll actually decrease to maybe four degrees at higher normal stresses, right? So that's really not gonna be um, acceptable for most sites with, that have appreciable slopes. So the industry solution is, to introduce needle punch reinforcement. So this, this shows a typical uh, needle board with barbed needles. And the idea is that the needles take fibers from one of the geotextiles. Let me just show this here. Fibers take uh, fibers from one of the geotextiles, punch them through the bentonite layer, and then out the opposite geotextile side to form that internal reinforcement through the bentonite layer. And there is a real benefit of the needle punch reinforcement. So this is some, some internal data uh, that compares uh, the shear strength of unreinforced uh, bentonite, that's, that's the, the orange curve down here, compared to a needle punch reinforced GCL. This is the blue curve shown up here, right? So you see, see right off the bat anywhere between five to eight times improvement in shear strength. So you start with a material that you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to safely put on a, on a slope under high normal stress, and then you end up with, with a pretty strong material that can hold up to, to high shear stresses. So as an industry, the way that we track the quality and the quantity of that internal reinforcement is through something called a peel strength test. So this is an example shown in the laboratory. You clamp onto the opposite, opposite geotextiles 
uh, of the GCL and you literally rip it apart and you measure that strength, that bond strength. Okay, so uh, the industry standard is 2.1 pounds per inch to 3.5 pounds per inch. But as we'll talk about in a moment, you can specify higher peel strength if your project, if your project requires it. So what do I mean by that? So this is a study that, that we did with uh, SGI. Um, in 2011, where we tested several different GCL samples that had different peel strengths associated with them. And we saw, so these different colored curves here, I'll come back to the spotlight, these different colored curves here represent GCLs with different amounts of internal reinforcement, right? So not surprisingly, you start off with low internal shear strength down here with the unreinforced GCL, that's the green curve. And then these curves that progressively move upward are associated with higher and higher peel strength values, higher and higher uh, amounts of internal reinforcement. So you can see there's a clear benefit to having higher peel strength. This red curve shown here represents kind of a, a typical uh, shear strength envelope for the interface between a geomembrane and a GCL, right? So, uh, so what we were careful of here is we wanted to make sure that the internal shear strength of the GCL is at least as high or higher than that red curve to make sure that the GCL doesn't fail internally, right? So you can see here, once this it looks like this curve, this red curve starts to intersect the internal curves somewhere between, this is around uh, 500 kPa to 650 kPa, so somewhere between 10,000 and maybe 13,000 pounds per square foot. Right? So once the normal stresses get to that level, then you may want to consider specifying a higher peel strength to raise up that curve. Okay. So just to sum up shear strength, you know, in general, we've seen from the past data that the GCL interface with the geomembrane is the most critical, so you'll want to test that. Uh, we've also seen that the non-woven geotextile side of a GCL is going to have better interface friction than the woven geotextile side, and that's that's largely because you tend to see a little more bentonite extrusion through the, through the woven side, so that could cause some lubrication effects. Uh, as I mentioned in the previous slide, that needle punch reinforcement provides high internal shear strength, uh, higher than the interface shear strength for most, most normal stresses. Once you start getting above maybe 10,000 or 12,000 pounds per square foot, you may want to look at uh, higher peel strength material. Uh, and then for, for really steep and really high normal stress applications, you may want to look at uh, what's known as a double non-woven reinforced GCL. So it has non-woven geotextiles on both sides. So uh, I won't read through all this in the interest of time, but just some recommendations related to shear strength and slope stability. You know, during the preliminary design phase, uh, there's some really good uh, technical literature available so you can see past shear results to get a feeling for what to expect. Sources include the geosynthetics manufacturers, they maintain databases, and there's uh, several, several good references, some of them I've listed here. But you know, as good as those references are, the past values should only be used as guidelines. You should never substitute them for actual project-specific shear testing, right? So at some point prior to bidding, uh, you should conduct interface shear tests to ensure that the design is feasible using commercially available materials that you're planning to use. And then additionally, during the construction phase, prior to installation, you want to perform conformance testing on the actual project materials to make sure that you're going to get the shear strength that, that, that your design calls for. Okay, so that, that was a real quick run through of the important design considerations. But you know, no matter how good the design is, no matter how good the design is, proper installation is needed for a successful project, right? So that's, so now we're moving into the last part of the presentation, talking about installation of GCL. And there are three really good ASTM standards to help guide us in that regard, related to storage and handling, installation, and also construction of test pads to evaluate potential installation damage. So a couple of things to point out here before, before we talk further about installation. You know, these are some practical considerations. If, if one is evaluating a geosynthetic clay liner versus a traditional compacted clay liner, there are several benefits that are related to installation of, of using GCLs. 
First is the speed and ease of installation. We, you know, we've seen typical GCL installation rates of up to two acres per day with a with a five man crew. Um, also, we've we've heard uh, from from many installation contractors that GCLs offer a preferable working surface for deploying and welding the overlying geomembrane. Uh, there's also less truck traffic, uh, safer operations, and lower carbon emissions associated with the GCL. Uh, and this was this was from a paper that we wrote in 2011 that looked at the carbon footprint of a GCL compared to a compacted clay liner. Uh, GCLs can also tolerate uh, greater temperature extremes uh, that might prevent compaction of a clay liner. And then finally, with respect to quality control, these are factory controlled materials. So so you're going to receive a set of manufacturing quality quality assurance results and documentation. And there's less QC testing involved with the GCL. In fact, most of the tests you can perform uh, by taking samples at the manufacturing plant, and you could have the results before the material even arrives at the job site. Right? So some clear benefits in that regard. But now let's talk about the actual installation. Right? So typically, this is how you'll see the GCL delivered to the job site. It comes in rolls. Uh, each of them is individually wrapped. And they, they may or may not come equipped with, uh, with slings for handling. And then, so using the using those straps or those slings, you can unload them from from the flatbed, uh, and you can you can transport them to to the um, to the project site. You can use an equipment. You can use heavy equipment to to unroll these rolls. So the idea is that they're they're pretty heavy rolls. They're on the order of 3,000 pounds each. And then when you unroll them, they'll form a panel that's going to be 15 feet wide by 150 feet long. And often you may need to reposition the panels to make sure there's an adequate overlap, which we'll talk about in a moment. So as I mentioned, the panels are on the order of 15 feet wide by 150 feet long. And in order to ensure uh, consistent hydraulic performance, you want to make sure that those panels are overlapped, right? So the recommendations are 6 to 12 inches on the side-by-side -side or the longitudinal overlaps and 24 inches on the end seams. Uh, you, you're going to want to shingle the, the panels end-to-end -end in the downhill direction so you don't provide an opportunity for water to flow in. And you're also going to apply uh, about a quarter pound per foot, per lineal foot, of supplemental bentonite, as shown in this photo here, in the, in the overlap areas. Uh, a lot of questions uh, come up regarding pipe penetrations and detail work. You know, usually the idea is you, you cut a notch around the penetration and fill that with extra bentonite, and then you can place a GCL as a collar over that pipe and then provide confining stress on top of it. With, with anchorage, you know, GCLs are handled similarly as other geosynthetics. You can use either an anchor trench or a flat runout, depending on what the, the slope and the, the project requires. Um, there, there are some good, uh, there are some good methods out there, design methods for for calculating the dimensions of the of the anchor trench. We we usually see uh, three three foot runout, uh, a foot and a half wide, or uh, two foot deep anchor trench. But that that could depend depending that could change depending on your site conditions. Then afterwards, we're often going to cover the GCL with the geomembrane. We've seen uh, commonly common use of low ground pressure vehicles to, to deploy the geomembrane on top of the GCL. And then with respect to cover placement, uh, for, for good performance, uh, GCL should have some type of ballast or, or overburdened soil on top of it, minimum of one foot, or you can bump that up to two feet if you expect roadways or, or, or heavy traffic. And on that note, you know, but before before we end the topic of installation, there has been a lot of good work recently and case studies recently that talk about GCLs under exposed geomembranes, right? So uh, a, lot, a lot of really good work has been done out of Queen's University in, in Canada. Uh, there's also some recent papers, recent good papers that I've seen from uh, Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo, uh, where case studies where uh, they they evaluated uh, the performance of liner systems where the geomembrane was left exposed for an extended period of time. This was months and even years of exposure. And the challenge here is that if you have a geomembrane that's exposed, it can be subject to huge temperature fluctuations, 
right? It'll heat, heat up during the day and then cool off at night, of course. So those temperature fluctuations drive a lot of mo moisture movement in the materials underneath the geomembrane, right? There's moisture trapped under there, and, and that, so that drive those temperature changes drive lots of movement of moisture, and that those effects can uh, can leave a GCL underneath the geomembrane susceptible to a couple of issues. One issue is that a GCL that um, that undergoes repeated wetting and drying, right? hydration and then drying under high temperatures, if that goes on repeatedly over a long period of time, the panels can actually shrink and then you can have reduced overlap or even a loss of overlap, separation of those panels. Um, the second issue that's been identified in recent case studies is because of, because of condensation water that forms on the underside of that geomembrane, that, that water can, can drip on top of the GCL and that can lead to dislodging and erosion of bentonites from bentonite from discrete portions of the GCL, right? So, so neither neither of those outcomes are, are desirable, of course, uh, but the, the, the data shows that both of them can be prevented with timely placement of at least one foot of soil on top of the geomembrane, right? That one foot of soil provides insulation, so you don't have those huge temperature extremes, and it also provides ballast to prevent all that movement from happening. Okay, so I know we threw a lot out, lot, lot out there at you. Um, happy to spend the rest of the time answering questions. Great, Chris. Uh, we have a bunch of questions, um, so <laughs> let, me, let me just jump in. Um, I have to read you this one. It's probably the funniest one I've encountered in I don't know how many years of doing this from uh, <laughs> from Rod Kirch, um, good friend. Yes. And uh, yeah, I know. And I, I won't turn on my camera, and you'll see why. Chris, when did your hair get so gray? <laughs> <laughs> That's a tough question. <laughs> I know. There you go, Rod. Okay. Now back to more technical. Chris, uh, GCL has two sides as non-woven geotextile and a woven geotextile. Which side should be in contact with the geomembrane if you go with the traditional? GCL with a woven geotextile. Uh, so I would I would say um, all else being equal, you know, if if shear strain's important and often it is, <laughs> then I would I would try to get the uh, non-woven side in contact with the geomembrane because that's going to be a stronger interface. Right. Um, the ASTM test, and I'm not sure which one it's talking about, is conducted with five psi confining pressure in the field. One would need equivalent overlying soil that achieves 5 psi confining pressure to estimate the in-situ hydraulic conductivity. So how relevant is the ASTM test with a confining pressure of 5 psi? So if, if you were to do the, so it, it is, if it's if we're talking about ASTM D5887, that's kind of an index test, right? So we, you use that 5 psi consistently, so, so you have a basis for comparison. Um, if we're talking about, and I'm just doing a calculation right now, if we're talking about um, the chemical compatibility test, which is the ASTM D6766, um, and we try to tie that to site conditions, let's say 5 PSI is roughly equivalent to the confining stress provided by six feet of soil, okay? Um, so, so if your application isn't gonna have six feet of soil, uh, then, then maybe it'll be a slightly higher hydraulic hydraulic conductivity. But you know, to be honest, in many applications, we're talking about bottom liner systems where there's going to be much, much more than six feet of overburden. So I would say that ASTM test gives a would be conservative in that case. Yeah, once once you get the confining pressure. Um, this is a long question. Uh, I'm working on a landfill project. The engineer designed the liner for the bottom of the landfill. Geomembrane is the top layer following GCL, then the last is a geonet as a layer facing the subgrade. After I watched your presentation, you had a different position for the GCL. Can I get an explanation of what is the preferred orientation? So why don't you take a bottom liner system and go top down maybe? Okay, so a, a typical bottom liner system. Um, actually, I could go back if 
that's okay. I'll go back to that earlier slide where we had a graphic of it. Okay. Sorry, bear with me. Here we go, right? So if we're talking about a bottom liner system, of course you have the waste on the, the top of the liner, you have a protective cover soil layer, then you have some type of drainage layer, right? You need to be able to collect that leachate so it doesn't build up on top of the liner system. Many times you use a drainage geocomposite for that. That is a geonet with geotextiles bonded to, to either side, to both sides, excuse me. Um, then you have the geomembrane and then you have the GCL underneath that. that that's a that's a single composite liner system that's commonly seen. Right, great. And uh, so Danny, that's slide number nine, if you wanna go back to that and the PDF will be on the website. For double line systems, do you recommend GCLs for both liner systems or should it use a single GCL, say for the primary and a compacted soil for the secondary, taking into yeah. account cost and strength and so on? It's hard for me to give a blanket recommendation for something like that. It's so site specific, uh, but I think I think it does make sense to have the GCL in the in the primary liner. I mean, first we saw uh, we saw that performance from the US EPA study. That was excellent performance, and also you're not uh, you're not trying to compact clay on top of a, on top of the secondary liner, right? So that that could be problematic. Right. Yeah. So definitely the primary. Okay. Um, and and they're really flowing in now, uh, Chris. I'm not sure we're going to get through all of these. Is the peel strength testing peeling the two sides apart or pulling from each end? The two sides apart. Right. How does the performance of the GCL vary depending on the type of geosynthetics, for example, non-woven versus woven used in the GCL from hydraulic conductivity point of view and chemical resistance point of view? Is there any effect of the changing of the geotextile with different concentrations? Um, gosh, that's a good question. Um, so I think for a standard GCL, my 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 react my gut reaction is there shouldn't be a difference um, in with respect to hydraulic performance. There is a difference in terms of shear performance, which was already talked about. Um, but you know with some of these new polymer uh, polymer amended bentonites, uh, there, there could be a difference because you want to make sure that that polymer doesn't leave the GCL, right? So, so you may, you may want to uh, work with the manufacturer to make sure that uh, that there's a low apparent opening size in that in that uh, geotextile to to keep everything in between the textiles. Okay. Um, question about the ASTM D6243 GCL interface testing. Uh, I've seen a lot of a variability in GCL to clay interface testing with this test method. Uh, I've been told some of the data were outliers. Do you know of anything we can do to reduce variability in this test? Do you know if slash one ASTM will establish a precision and bias for D6243, which I know you know is the GCL interface testing <coughs> test method? That That's a tough question. I, I know um, you know when I when I attended ASTM regularly, um, I know that was a, that was a topic that was discussed often. I, I don't know where the precision bias stands. Um, there is so much. There is a lot of variability in in that test. Um, I'm, I'm surprised to hear that there's variability in that interface though. GCL against soil. Um, I mean, assuming it's the same soil type, I wouldn't expect that much difference. Yeah, I can, Chris. Just if I can jump in, I could see some variability if people are comparing, say, the woven side to a non-woven side. You know, they, if you had a woven on top of the compacted clay versus uh, a non-woven, that could change things up a little bit. If, and and that, it's a go good ahead. point. I guess uh, to add to that is um, uh, the the shear rate also will affect the performance of the clay, right? If you shear it too fast, you have undrained yeah. conditions. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if temporary access over the GCL is unavoidable in the field, is it possible to cover it with soil? If so, how? what is the minimum thickness that should be used? Oh, so co covering the GCL directly with soil? Uh, I would say, I would say uh, 12 inches, I would say a foot. Okay. Um, what is the proper method of determining, oh, here's another interface, uh, interface strength of the GCL with its over, lying material like a geomembrane or a protective layer of geosynthetics? Oh, 
um, so I, if I understood the question correctly, I mean, it seems to me it would be the ASTM D6243 test, um, unless I'm missing something. Right. No, I, I think that's it. And I'll just throw out D5321, which is the interface test of just other geosynthetics versus focus on a GCL. Um, can you speak to the difference in performance between thermally locked and non-thermally locked GCLs? Um, okay, so that that's a big topic, actually. Um, so there are advantages and disadvantages to to, to both both of those construction methods. Um, so it, yeah, so I I'm, I'm reluctant to go too much into it because then we start we start kind of pitting different manufacturers against each other and I'm not really eager to do that. Okay. Um, great presentation. Question about deg degradation of GCL. Have studies been conducted on what happens to a GCL over time when it has been covered with one to two feet of soil? Oh, um, so degradation of the GCL, huh? So I'm yeah. wondering if that's related to chemical degradation or de degradation of the synthetic the geosynthetic components it's hard to interpret that um yeah i mean i i guess i guess what i'll say is that you know in in a buried environment uh with low oxygen levels there's been some really good work out of uh out of europe out of germany that has looked at like accelerated aging tests of the geotextile components and the reinforcement uh, and under low oxygen environments, they, they project lifespans on the order of, you know, 200, 250 years. Right. Um, is the GCL with a geomembrane attached still being manufactured? Uh, if so, what is your opinion of this combination? My understanding is it is. They are still being manufactured by, I think, by multiple manufacturers. Um, I, I think, I think it's, I think it's a really good product. Um, I, I, um, especially for for cover applications, um, where maybe you don't need, you don't need um, like a subtitle D type of landfill liner system like the one that's shown on the screen right now. Right. Uh, is there a need for evaluating the shear strength of, poly, of a polymer amended GCL, or is the shear characteristics of the polymer amended similar to the conventional G GCL? That's, that's a really good question. My, my advice would be to you you should you should evaluate the shear performance if you're if you're considering a polymer amended bentonite GCL. Right. Uh, okay you mentioned the polymer amended bentonite. How long did it take to develop the amendments for the two figures with low hydraulic conductivity that you showed on your slide. So maybe you could put that slide back. Oh yeah, I can go to back to that. Um, so that was probably, I'm almost there, sorry. Um, that was probably the better part of a decade of R&D. Wow, okay. Um, In oh boy, in elevated temperature landfills, are there any detrimental effects of elevated leachate on standard GCLs? Yeah, so, so that that's another emerging area. I haven't seen hard data on that yet. I think, I think Colorado State is doing some work in that regard. Um, so, so I can't really answer that definitively. Um, I guess my my feeling is that. My feeling is that if the if the GCL and the bentonite remains hydrated, e even in those elevated temperature settings, it should hold up okay. Uh, but if the elevated temperatures cause it to to desiccate, to dry out, then that that could impact performance. Okay, uh, let me see if I can squeeze in a couple more. Um, how thick is the bentonite layer in the GCL? Uh, when it's hydrated, it's on the order of I'd say like 0.7 inches. How about unhydrated? Oh, it'll be less than that. Um, maybe 0.3. Okay. Uh, does the geomembrane provide adequate confining pressure on the GCL if exposed, or should it be covered? Yeah. So that ties into the the last couple of slides. I, I would I would say, yeah, I would say it doesn't provide enough confining confining pressure. Okay. Uh, okay. 
Um, all right, we probably have uh, 15 more questions. <laughs> okay. So, uh, everybody, thank you so much for the questions. We will have a follow-up podcast with Chris, and we will answer all of the questions, and that'll be in a podcast, as well as the answers will be posted on our website with his slides and the webinar. If you'd like to contact Chris directly, his contact information is on the screen right there, Harper College and his email address, or you can contact me or Jen Miller. Next, our next webinar is scheduled for July 22nd, and it's going to be a live panel discussion on QA and QC techniques for fabricated geosynthetics. And our panelists will be Shannon Goodrich, Brian Queen, Ryan Camp, and Tanya Switalski of Titan Environmental. If you'd like more information, please visit the FGI website, which is the last slide, Chris, and you will can go to the online PDH program and watch all of the prior webinars and receive a PDH certificate for doing that. We have some installation details and, and so on on the quiz uh, and some quizzes as well on the website. So Chris, that's all the time we have today. Um, thanks so much for squeezing this webinar in, and we will do a podcast to answer the rest of, rest of the questions. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for attending.